When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Advocacy will cost you something. It will cost you your pride. It will cost you your comfort, either physical or emotional, financial security. It's not for free. It will cost you something. And so in that moment, when I think about where were the peers, where were my peers, why didn't anyone intervene? Because it's scary, right? It's scary to intervene, especially if it's somebody who's in a position of power that you're going to choose to call out and the power dynamic is real. My name is Mita Malik, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Today, we're talking to Mita Malik, the head of equity, inclusion, and impact at Carta, and formerly the head of diversity and cross-cultural marketing at Unilever. Mita is an outspoken advocate. And yeah, if you haven't heard of her, you haven't seen her, look her up in Google News. She's not the famous singer-songwriter. She's the other one. But I would argue she's cooler than the singer-songwriter, yeah. Sharon. Yeah. And you'll find other cool stuff like blog posts that she's written on Working Mother and a lot of other really meaningful things. Not that songs aren't meaningful, but she's she's made a difference for many other people as someone who is an advocate for others, but also who shared a lot of her stories with us about her own experiences with racism or or any other sorts of challenges that she's faced. Yeah. I mean... We went really deep, actually, on names, you know, like what is a name and how it can be used kind of passive aggressively against you. And yeah, some of the conversations hit a little too close to home, but we somehow dug our way out and got to happier times by the end, but really gives us a lot to think about. So we hope you'll enjoy our conversation with our friend Mita. Mita, thank you for joining us on the pod. Thank you for having me. So you're kind of infamous. You can look you up on Google News and Harvard Business Review. And you talk about this stuff that we talk about on this show, but you actually professionally talk about it. And I think a lot of our listeners do want to hear about you and your story and how you got there. But can you tell us something before the career journey? Who were you when you were a little kid? Sure. Well, I'll take infamous as a compliment. You know, if you do Google me, for some reason, I come up as a musical artist, which I'm actually not, but that's kind of a... Interview over. Sorry. (laughs) If we did, what is it? Two truths and a lie or two lies and a truth. I don't remember that game. But yes, I'm not a musical artist for, for anyone listening. I wish I was. My story starts, I grew up outside of Boston. We were three families of color and I grew up in a time and a place where it was not cool to be Indian probably still true in many parts of the country and world today. And I was the funny-looking dark girl with the funny-looking long braid whose parents drove a funny-looking car and 
had funny looking music playing from it and had funny <laughs> accents. And, you know, it was funny until it wasn't funny anymore. And I was bullied pretty heavily, both physically and verbally growing up. So that's been something that's really driven me throughout my career. And I, when I talk to leaders about this too, it's really interesting if you can, which is why I love how you open up your, your conversations, is actually if you can dig deep and go back to some of those crucible moments early on in your life, you'll probably find something that helped inform your leadership style and sort of led you to where you are today. And I do want to ask about that, but I want to ask a little bit more about your parents too. So it's funny, we've all gotten this question the wrong way, but where are you from? Yes, yes. And I guess, how do you answer that question when someone asks you? I'm from Jersey City. And then when they ask the question the second and the third time, how do you answer the question? I will ask, well, where are you from? I once had this with an Uber (laughs) driver who got really Uh heated. (laughs) Who was, he's like, well, I'm from Jersey. And I'm like, well, I'm from Jersey too. If you want to know where I'm really from, it's outside of Boston. But yeah. Yeah. That's funny. (laughs) It's interesting. I get that. I travel a lot for work, well, pre-pandemic. And especially when I'm in Europe, I'll get that question a lot. Where are you from? Where are you really from? Or your English is so good. I've gotten that so many times when I've come off stage. Not what a great presentation. Your English is so good. <laughs> well, well, it better be good. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> I hope it is. I hope it is. Yeah. What did mom got- and dad want you to be when you grew up? My mom and dad... I'm the proud daughter of Indian immigrant parents. My dad was a tiger dad. God bless him. God love him. We lost him suddenly three and a half years ago. But my dad always said to me, interestingly enough, do what you're passionate about and the money will come later. And I never always followed that advice until recently, but he was always like, do what you're passionate about. And so they were very hands-off in the sense that they knew education was really important, but we were surrounded by lots of doctors and engineers growing up. And they wanted us to be happy and they wanted us to excel in school because they knew that would be sort of the basis for whatever we chose to do later in life. And I had a very happy nuclear family. It was my younger brother, my parents and myself. And my, my dad was from a family of 10. My mom's from a family of nine, all still in India. No one immigrated, just the two of, just my dad came and then my mom followed. But that was my upbringing. Yes. Yeah, right. Both my parents have multiple siblings and yeah, there were just two of us. I'm like, yes, okay. yes. My mom has nine siblings in total. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge family. I used to think it was an Indian thing. And then I had met other like immigrant kids whose parents had the same story. And so then I thought it wasn't an American thing. And I think what I've learned as I grow up, we all waited longer to have our kids. It's a generational thing. Yeah, it's definitely a generational thing. It might be. Yes, it is. It is. I'm good with two. I have a five and seven-year-old. I have my hands full. So we're good. I don't know how you people with multiple kids do it. I can barely handle <laughs> one. Oh, I was going to go back to you. Your dad had said to do what you love. And you mentioned that you didn't understand that until recently. What were you doing before? And how is that different from what you're doing now? Well, I think when I looked at jobs, I mean, I remember a really small example being at Columbia University, and I had an internship from Revlon and Deutsche Bank. You couldn't get more polar opposite. And the Deutsche Bank internship was four times as much, no surprise, than the Revlon internship. And I am have always been a beauty obsessive, like very interested in, in beauty and personal care. And I went to Deutsche Bank for the internship, wow. but I did it because they were offering me so much more. And I was like, this, this is a lot more money than I've ever seen, especially when you're like a senior in college, right? Not wanting yeah. to feel like my parents who 
God bless them, paid for my undergrad, but wanting to make sure that I could pay for expenses and things like that. So there were small moments in that where I have really shifted my thinking into thinking I'm going to put out my positive energy into the universe. I'm going to put out what I can do to make impact. And as long as I can pay my bills and support my children and feed them and give them food and shelter, the rest will follow. And I, that's from a place of privilege because we are more than well off than our parents could have ever dreamed for us or my grandparents for that matter. Yeah. Absolutely. I remember my own experience. I was looking for jobs as well last year of college and I was looking for marketing related roles or advertising related roles. And William Morris paid the most and they were the cigarette manufacturer. And I was like, hmm. (laughs) For a second, I was like, do I do that? Just because like literally the pay was, I think almost double some of the other jobs I was looking at, but I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to do it. Not that Deutsche Bank was killing people with carcinogens <laughs> or anything else like that. Completely different situation. But but it's thinking about what's important to you and, and what you want your legacy to be and what impact you want to make and whatever your moral compass is, what you want to live by. And I always say, I can only control what I do in my own actions. I can't control what other people do, but I can control what I do and what I choose to do. But when did that happen? Because as I've come to know you, some friends said, you need to look at what this lady is talking about. I was like, oh, wow, I can get behind that. And then we met. And so I've met modern Mita. (laughs) As a little five-year-old, were you like speaking truth to power at home? Absolutely not. I was painfully shy growing up. I think that's different than being introverted. Painfully shy. And my brother and mother are my witnesses now. They don't recognize the person I am today in many respects because... I have grown and pushed myself a lot. I wouldn't say to be an extrovert. I think there's a term that's called ambivert. Of course, it's a mix of an introvert and an extrovert. But I go back to my early childhood and really being bullied. And one of my toughest childhood memories that I talk about now pretty openly is there was a lot of bullying that we endured, whether that was being name-called, whether that was having the N-word and S-word spray-painted on our driveway in front of our home, which would have been considered a hate crime, but we couldn't afford to get rid of the words and the town did nothing about it. And so that was a moment I remember when I was 12, but it was my freshman year in high school where I was in intro to physical science class. I was very interested in the sciences and it was two bullies, two white boys, and the bullying had escalated and escalated to the point where in class that day, they decided to set my hair on fire. My hair, which in Indian culture is not uncommon, was actually down to my knees, so it was quite long. And my my lab partner, who actually never spoke to me, for whatever reason, she didn't like me, but, but that's the first time she ever spoke to me to say, like, your hair's on fire. And so, you know, while the damage to my hair was done, the damage to my psyche was deep. But the thing that happened that day that hadn't ever happened in the time that I had been bullied was the boys got suspended only for a day, which is a a different conversation. But the guidance counselor decided to take me under his wing and recognize that I was fast. Now I'm super clumsy and I'm not coordinated, but I'm fast. And he recognized that. And he was also the track coach. So he put me on the varsity cross country team and then the track team and, and sports for me became the great equalizer because I was just fast when I was on the field. And running has sort of become my solace throughout the things I've I've gone through in my life. But what I would tell you, that was the moment that someone stood up for me. And that, for me, was what advocacy looked like. 
not only was he integral in reporting the two boys, and of course the suspension was what it was, but continued to look after me for the time I, and check in on me for the time that I remained at that school. And so that has been a really formative experience as I think about how that translates into what happens in work, workplaces in terms of bullying and what does it mean to be an advocate and stand up for somebody. And so that experience I, I really carry with me. That sounds both so traumatic and yet so beautiful in terms of how that ended. When you started talking about it, I literally, I had this pit in my stomach, but I'm, I'm really glad that that turned out to be a positive experience from knowing that there are allies that you can turn to and that there, there are people that will be advocates for you and that we can also do that for others as well when we see something like that happening to somebody else. No, absolutely. And I think with all the things that I went through growing up, it would be easy to be like, woe is me, all this pain, suffering, damage, whatever you want to call it. But I think the positive is, is that it really sort of made me think about how I could show up for other people. And I think that's so important. And I think in the years that have followed, I would spend time Googling the bullies. I think we do this with exes. People do it, all sorts of people, <laughs> right? Ex-bosses. And you're like, where are these people? I may now? not have done that once or twice. Maybe not have done that. Okay. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and so over the years, I just thought to myself, I should not be angry at these bullies. Where the heck were their parents? Where were the teachers? Where was law enforcement? Where were the people who needed to intervene and stand up for me? And my story of little Mita, then like 16-year-old Mita, is not my story. It's all of our stories. It's so many stories as I start talking about not only bullying in childhood, but bullying in companies and organizations. Everyone has a story. And my question is, where are all the bystanders? Where are all the people who could have intervened and done something? And that's what I'm actually really interested in today. I like how you, how did the system, what is the system that created this, that allows this? Yes. You can suspend the bully, you can expel the bully, but there will be another one. The system will permeate it. And I think I I really, just to make it a little current, I hate the argument of just a few bad apples. Like that's such a bullshit argument. Bad apples happen because there's a problem with the tree or the squirrels or whatever it is. And it's systemic is something that keeps coming up. And it's, I used to say this about technology as a digital tech guy. When I would try to communicate how crazy things are going to be in the next 20 years, I was like, just look back at what our tech experience was 20 years ago. And you have to say the same thing. 20 years ago, people kind of rose colored glasses, but go back to the 60s, but even the 80s and the shit that was going down, be it Clarence Thomas or Rodney King. And we, we look through modern lenses at, oh, those guys were so uncivilized. They didn't know that thing. Okay, well, what are they going to say about us 20 years from now? Just accepting that there are things that are wrong and maybe we should try to look for them more proactively. I guess, so now in, in your current role, not even your current role, I guess through the career, past being 16, past college, starting right at your career, were there moments when you did still feel like you had to act a different way or you couldn't say something or you just yep. had to kind of be quiet? Absolutely. And I've, I've written about this pretty extensively now, but I have been bullied throughout my year, career in corporate America, <laughs> bullied off and on for some periods that have lasted longer than others, some periods that were short. And the more I talk about this, especially I would say with white women, women of color, multicultural, multi-ethnic women, everyone has a story and you're like, oh my God. And so I would say early in my career, I wanted to be a leader. 
I was very interested in marketing. I could see myself leading teams, but I was still trying to build my confidence and find my voice. And I, in one of my early first assignments out of grad school, worked for a leader who decided he couldn't say my full name, which is fine, but also didn't want to call me Mita. So my full name, actually, when we started this, you asked me to say my name and I paused for a second. My full name is Madhumita. And I actually shortened that for all the reasons you would imagine because no one could pronounce it. And I go by Mita, Mita. And that's just become part of who I am and my personality. And he decided that he couldn't call me Madhumita, which was fine. He couldn't call me Mita, which was what everyone else called me. And he decided to call me Muhammad for Seriously? the next months. Absolutely. I wrote about it in Fast Company. Yeah. Muhammad. And he thought it was really funny. He'd be like, hey, Muhammad, come to the forecasting meeting. Or, hey, Muhammad, where are those product samples? And it was, I think also what happens with bullying is there's a lot of shame. Even when I share that, there's like a pit in my stomach because I'm like, I allowed that to happen, right? I allowed him to call me Muhammad and I responded to that for the six months that I was on that person's team or close to a year. And then I left. But what we have to understand and what I allow myself forgiveness in is that there are power dynamics at play, right? There are power dynamics at play in corporations. There are power dynamics in play in life, right? (laughs) And so what I say to people, advocacy will cost you something. It will cost you something. It will cost you your pride. It will cost you your comfort, either physical or emotional, financial security, it's not for free. It will cost you something. And so in that moment, when I think about where were the peers, where were my peers, why didn't anyone intervene? Because it's scary, right? It's scary to intervene, especially if it's somebody who's in a position of power that you're going to choose to call out and the power dynamic is real. I'm just unpacking that. I know. Did I lose you both? No. (laughs) I'm really just reflecting on that because I think... I can't ask what about your favorite movie now. (laughs) Well, yes, you can. Six Sense. I love Six Sense. That's a later question. And it's, I want to pull on the thread more, but I don't want to pull on the thread too far. Gosh. You can pull as far as you want. That's fine. I'm I'm an open book now, but yeah. No, insane. Like that's the show's therapy. Let's be clear. Yes. (laughs) It's... I had that moment, Rashid, like, what the fuck? Like, seriously, you can only half buy. Similarly, like I let people mispronounce my name, Raman, Roman. That's how that's my takeout name when I order takeout, right? Yes. I'm okay with that. But when you just like blatantly disregard my identity, it's okay that you can't pronounce my name. But when the nickname has, and it would be different if the nickname was, hey, speedy, because I'm fast or hey, smart ass, because I'm a smart ass, Mm -hmm. which that's an acceptable name. Just, yeah, fuck that. Sorry, I just, I didn't hit the pit on my stomach. I got really angry for you. And I might not have stuck up for you in that moment because I also, the power dynamic thing is real. It's real. And I would say that there's a difference between mispronouncing someone's name and repeatedly correcting them and helping them pronounce a name that doesn't sound familiar versus, like you said, a nickname that has nothing to do with anything about well, it does. the person. You're a brown person. Here's a, that's here's true, a brown that's person true. type name. Yeah, that's true. And it's also but a nickname that they didn't choose either, right? To your point about Speedy, like I'm fast. I'm proud that you call me Speedy, right? But another interesting point you just brought up, I'd love to know how many people have a second name for takeout. That's fascinating that you said that because my husband's named Piyush and he goes by Peter when he does takeout. 
there's a study there. I bet you. It's so fascinating. Part of it is, if it's a restaurant I go to frequently or people I interact with frequently, I used to let people get away with saying ramen. I'm from the South. And it's fine. Some of my closest friends. But then somewhere, I got the rum and coke joke so I could correct people and they could remember it to say it correctly. And then when people from both worlds met, what gave me a little sense of pride is how upset some of my Southern friends were with me for not telling them how to say my name correctly. That's a weird sort of fucked up pride, but I'll call out my friend Kana and Laura. They were genuinely upset with me for never correcting them on that. And I don't know what that point is, but yeah, I have a takeout name and it's because I don't want to, I don't want to explain it. I don't have time. I just, yeah, that's what my husband goes through. He doesn't want to explain it. So, but are we bad for that? Come on, Sharon, Mita, judge me. I don't, sorry. I don't have judgment, but I have a question for both of you. Now that you're more enlightened than you were from some of those previous experiences, when you're in that same situation, what do you do? So with the takeout situation, it's sometimes providing an easier name. That's, I guess it can be seen by some as maybe just accepting it and just finding an easier way to not create any kind of conflict or controversy. But if someone's in front of you and they're in a meeting and they call you the wrong thing or are consistently mispronouncing your name, what do you do today? Or do you just continue to let it happen? Well, I mean, there's the polite correction if it keeps happening. Mm-hmm. And then if they keep not correcting, there is the confrontation. I'm, I mean, I can't, I can only speak for myself. Maybe I'm curious how you feel, but it's like, I'm confident enough in my own skin and even my position and my risk tolerance on shit now because I'm a fully realized adult. But Roman in his 20s wasn't. Absolutely. That's Mita in her 20s. Yeah. (laughs) I agree with you. I correct people. Like you you saying Mita, Mita is also fine, but I go by Mita only because no one can ever pronounce Mita. So I'm like, oh, that is the correct pronunciation of my name. There's another Roman Segel, and he's more famous than me. He's a UK PR <laughs> professional. He lives in Boston now. He was and, on our show too a few weeks oh, ago. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but I mean, he's because he's built this persona around Roman, he lets people call him that. And it's fine. But he's like, oh, yeah, that's it's funny. I had this friend, Hamid. He's half Iranian, half Southern, I don't know, white. And his name is Hamid Mashayak. And he goes by Hamid. And then my mom, when she met him, was like, no, it's Hamid. It's me. <laughs> and Hammond's like, no, my dad's Hammond Sr. I'm Hammond Jr. <laughs> and I met his dad eventually. I was like, what is like, dude, I'm Iranian. I left in the 70s. I came over. And he did. he's like, I wasn't going to correct people. So I just went with it. And so 30 years later, his identity and his son's identity. And it's not a bad thing. There's multiple pronunciations of things around the world. But it's just. This is how I like to live my life. I feel like 99% of people have positive intent. And there's the 1% who has negative intent. I read all the headlines of people out there and the things that are happening. But for the most part, we could share lots of experiences of bullying and terrible things that have happened. But that's not, I try not to believe that's the majority of people. Otherwise, I can't do this work that I do. So in the case where someone calls me Mida for like the first five minutes of the meeting, I try to very quickly say, oh, and by the way, I'm sure you didn't realize this. You pronounce my name, Mita, and do it phonetically. And usually they're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Thank you very much. Yeah, because yeah. guess what? If we met and you pronounce my name, Mita, and then six months later, you're still saying Mita because I never had the courage to <laughs> correct you. At some <laughs> point, it's embarrassing for the person because sure. like, you never told me. Yeah. And then there's also, this happens on my team, people mispronouncing team members' names and for me to pull that person aside later and say, listen, I don't think you realized 
this has happened in, in many occasions. Well, I'll call someone after and I'll say, hey, I don't think you realize, but this is how you pronounce his name. And they're like, oh my God, thank you so much. I had no idea. Do you think LinkedIn or Facebook? I mean, right now there's a trend of everyone putting their preferred pronouns on. Right. Do you think there will be a world where phonetic pronunciation, you get to click a button and it shows up next to well, LinkedIn does now have that. Huh. They have a phonetic. Yeah. Yes, go check it out. Yeah, I actually it. haven't done it yet, but they have a phonetic pronunciation for LinkedIn. It's very interesting. They did it, I want to say, a few months back, and it was just a huge hit. People are really excited about it. We usually ask about family later, but I want to I just keep going down this name thread thing. Sure. When you and your husband picked your kid's name. So there's oh, the take, there's the, yeah, there's the takeout <laughs> name, right? The takeout <laughs> yeah, name. Just- the takeout name is a conscious choice because I just don't want, I want to avoid a problem. And my daughter's half Chinese, half Indian. So she has a Western first name, a Chinese middle name and an Indian last name. But even the selection of the name, we right. went to the name game, make fun of it game with it. So did you go with a hyper complex uh, Indian name? Well, here you, we don't go. Say, you don't have to say their yes, name. No, it's fine. I'm happy to say their name. So my son who's seven, his name is Jay. His name is actually Jay Unth. So I did to him what my parents did to me. So (laughs) he's named after one of my husband's beloved uncles who we're still close with today. We decided on Jay Unth. And then after being doped up on epidurals and I had my son during Sandy, that's like another podcast for another time, but it was a stressful time. And I remember the delivery happening. And then I remember saying, we have to call him Jay. We can't call him Jay. We have to call him Jay. And by that point, it was too late because my husband conference called everyone in and said, welcome Jay. And I was like, it's too late. But he is very proud of his name. And he goes by Jay in school. But when he's inter- I'm Jay. And he's very proud of it in a way that makes me so proud that he That's great. owns his name. And my daughter, her name is Priya and named after my dad for his middle name. And he saw her born, which was great. But yeah, so Jay and Priya. I know we've kind of moved on from pronunciations, but I just wanted to share this with Raman. So in our house now, ramen noodles are called ramen noodles because my kids... <laughs> My kids know you so well. You're a celebrity. Yeah, that the word ramen actually doesn't exist in our family vernacular anymore. (laughs) You know, what's funny. I went with the mispronunciation forever, and then people started making noodle jokes in college. And then I was like, no, you can't do that. So I'm that not a noodle. I'm yes. not a noodle. I'm a cool drink. I'm a cool drink. <laughs> but now you are a noodle in our house. <laughs> oh, that's really sweet. That's like a great sign of affection. It, I don't know, Sharon. You can tell them I'm taking back my comic book drawing order. Why? From them. Uh, no, they don't. They don't mean it that way. It's just that they don't. We don't I, use. They. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. We just call it ramen now instead of ramen. That's just. <laughs> <laughs> we've changed the other one to your name. <laughs> yeah. Why do I have to change my name? He's the one that sucks. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, what's so funny. I was never, I want to say this happened in my career a few years ago where someone senior told me, once you feel you've gotten to this position where you have nothing to lose and it's time to speak your truth because you do that. And so many other people will speak their truth because we all have stories that we aren't ready to share yet or their stories where we've been an advocate for somebody else. And I feel every time I share my story, I hope it helps somebody else to share theirs. And our stories are constantly being rewritten, right? So the story doesn't stop here. (laughs) My story and all of our stories will continue to change. And so that's where I think in the work I do and just thinking about what the most important thing you can do in terms of being the best leader you can be is being empathetic 
And the only way you can be empathetic is if you try to get a window into what someone else's experience and life has been like. And so as much as you can storytell and create a safe space to share those stories, I think that's so important. Yeah. On this other podcast I have, I was talking to an executive at Google, and we talked a good 15 minutes about the idea of psychological safety. But absolutely, to steal a question from that podcast, and a common connection you and I have is Mr. Paul Pullman, who I've had the yes. privilege of talking to. Paul was, he's an XP-engineer, he's the CEO of Unilever, where you were for quite a while. Can you talk about some of, because here's the difference. You and I grew up, brown people in America, right? With a lot of my hair didn't get caught on fire, but other bad things did happen, right? Yeah. Paul had a pretty good life growing up and he did. And but he somehow got to this realization once he he took advantage of his privilege and his position to kind of make some change. And I mean, you work with him much. I talked to him for like two hours. And that was about it, right? So like my experience with him is very different. But How do you observe that? And not just with him, but with other senior leaders, what is their role at the table to kind of take action? I would tell you the reason I joined Unilever, well, it was a privilege to work at Unilever. And I would say I grew up with Suave and Vaseline and Lipton. All these brands were like part of my family. So what a privilege to go and run them and touch them and feel them. I mean, it was phenomenal. But there was a annual report I read sometime back where Pullman was quoted in it. And he said, there's no line where Unilever ends and society begins. And I said, this is where I want to work because what he was trying to do at Unilever at the time and continues to be done under Alan Jope's stewardship is to treat a corporation of that size of 103,000 employees as an NGO, right? I mean, that's kind of the big thought. And how do you create purpose-driven brands? But I mean, back to the question of leaders at the table, psychological safety only happens when as a leader, you can share your truth. Why am I going to share anything with you? And the reason I did was because we had an opportunity to speak. We know people in common. I've watched, I heard your podcast, right? But you only do that when someone else leans in for you. So as a leader, when you have a seat at the table and you have an opportunity to share, share. (laughs) Because when you do, that'll come back and leaps and bounds, and then others will share with you. So psychological safety is not a one-way street. You can share whatever you want with me. I'm like, yeah, but you haven't shared anything with me. So why am I going to share anything with you? It's not as, so this term that gets thrown out about psychological safety, it's like leaders, if you hold any sort of power in that relationship, right? I don't care if you're a 20-person company or thousands of people. I don't care like how many people you have on your team or you're in your organization. You've got to lead and share because no one else is going to be willing to do that as well. I mean, this has been, as we were talking earlier about, everyone's on their own COVID-19 journey, right? Behind the best baked banana bread that you ever did, that you posted on Instagram and drive-by birthday parties, you don't know what kind of pain is going on in people's homes, whether that's the burden of having to choose between your job and teaching your children, whether that's having having lost a loved one to COVID, whether that's because you're alone and struggling with isolation, struggling with mental health. I mean, I'm often on a call. I was on a call recently where I was just, God, I'm in such a bad mood because my son is just having a tantrum. He's just not doing well today. And even that, opening that, allowed all people to share what they're going through because no day looks so... I mean, in many ways, you would say every day is like Groundhog's Day. Every day seems the same, but also... We're, I feel like, at least in my family, we're reacting differently on any given day to what's happening 
in our environment. I had a boss. This is before the situation we're in, my first startup, but a longtime friend and mentor. He was like, when you write your emails, obviously quickly read it before you send to make sure whatever you're asking for is clear. But he was like, imagine the person who's receiving your email or even your Slack is having the worst day possible. Mm -hmm. Because speaking is very different from reading and you read into how words are written based on what your mood is. And that really changed not saying I'm a great practitioner of it, but it's like, you almost have to write. And in this current era that we're in, you, I hate to say you have to assume the worst case, but we're all feeling and hurting in different ways right now. Absolutely. So I guess I want to ask a question about that. The world is sideways. It just is. And I was literally just going through the major developments politically, for the most part that happened in the last week. Where, what are we at? We're in early October right now. (laughs) and less about professionally and more personally. Like it's just, I have some deadline on some project that's we're going to deliver something to the market in mid-December. And I literally made the joke of like, if the world's still here, like if we're not in a civil war, if I don't know, unpack how you're viewing the world right now. Yeah. Well, listen, we're week 31, day three. Yes, I am counting. That's when I started remote working and this whole, it was like the first week of March, right? Where many of us ended up at home for a while, for God knows how long. But I would say this is also, this whole conversation is from a place of privilege. I have the privilege to work from home. I have the privilege to talk to you all. I have the privilege of shelter, food, health, where especially many parts of the world, especially in India, where a lot of my family, our extended families in Calcutta, that's not what the world is like, right? So just keeping that top of mind. I think that for me, again, I, in my life, try to be a half glass full person. It doesn't always work. I'm human and I'm flawed, but I try to stay positive. And I do think since the killing of George Floyd at the end of May, I feel like the flame that was already burning in this country was just reignited. And then you see what happened in Wisconsin and Rochester and the Breonna Taylor verdict. And I just think people are awakened in a different way. And maybe that's just me being half glass full, right? And I also say this as somebody who is doing this work and studying this work. I also don't want to come off as trite because I am somebody who identifies with the Black community, but I don't identify as Black. And so I'm not somebody who, I have not endured the same intergenerational trauma as my Black friends and colleagues. But I would say in doing this work, what I'm hearing more and more from white leaders who want to be advocates coming to me in a way that they hadn't before, right? Really trying to figure out what is their place in all of this and what can they be doing to make real change in their sphere of influence? And so that makes me incredibly hopeful. Well, you wrote, it's like a month ago, you were featured in Harvard Business Review about how to think about hiring a chief diversity officer. (laughs) Right. And there's one moment in it. It's a great post. We'll put the link in the show notes. But there's this one moment in the post where like, if you're thinking about it this way, just stop. Just yes, stop. Can true. you talk about that a little more? Yeah. I mean, listen, I think I've got a lot of friends who are in the startup world, smaller companies, multinational companies, the size of Unilever, people coming to me saying, I'm looking to hire a chief diversity officer and or we've done nothing in the inclusion space. We're starting today. What's your advice? And If you are creating a role that is three levels down from the CEO, where ironically, you're not going to compensate or recognize that person's value, who could be a white woman, multicultural, multi-ethnic woman, a man of color, right? So also not paying and recognizing that individual and wanting them to come 
and deliver the moon and stars. I always say, if you think you're going to hire this person, they're going to come and wave a magic wand and fix everything, then let's just stop and reset. I think it's quite frankly a waste of time if you haven't really done the work to think about why do you want this person and how are you going to set this person up for success to our conversation earlier on the existing structure and processes that are already there in your organization and in some cases need to be rebuilt, rethought, dismantled. And that's not easy for people to hear. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, I created the post. I'm going to hire for this person. Great. I mean, great intention. I'm not saying the intention isn't positive. I'm just saying, think it through to the impact. And is that really what you want? What do your kids think you do for a living? Well, my son thinks I make ice cream. (laughs) Oh, because of Unilever? (laughs) Yeah, which makes me really sad. I'm like, I don't. I wish I did because that would be a really cool job. Yeah, they were really sad this year. They didn't go to take your kids to work day out, you know, clearly because of the pandemic, but they had gone two years in a row. And they just, they think I make ice cream. Yeah, I try to say I help people, but that doesn't, they're still stuck on the ice cream. My daughter just says, my dad's on the computer all the time. He occasionally (laughs) walks up to the microphone and tries (laughs) talking to Sharon. It's great. I feel like we've covered so much and we've kind of, we've gone deep. We've gone a little bit low, but we've gone a little bit high too. And I'm almost, I think we're ready for speed round. What do you think? Okay. I don't know, Mita. Are you ready? You know what you're. I, I, do, I have no idea what the speed round is. I didn't even. If you sent it to me, I did not look at no, it. So now I'm scared. These are, these are yeah. all impromptu. Oh, okay. Okay. I'll be on my best behavior. Here we exactly. go. Focus. Exactly. What's Weird. one thing about you that no one expects? That I'm funny. Though <laughs> my husband doesn't think I'm funny, but I am funny. Yes. <laughs> That's like the perfect answer. <laughs> great. You are pretty funny. You made me laugh. One for one. Okay. Yeah, exactly. There are fabulous prizes at the end of this. Oh, are there? Okay, good. Is there a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to? Oh, well, I would say the last book I read nine months ago, I'm about to write this. Please don't ask me what book I read recently because we're in a pandemic and I have children who has time to read. But I did read Michelle Obama's Becoming. And I heard her speak at Barclays when we did live events back way back when. And she talks about microaggressions and she talks about how they're the daily cuts that you endure every single day. And when they accumulate over a lifetime, they can have a devastating impact on one's sense of self and self-confidence. And how she describes it is something that really has resonated with me. I love that book. I listened to it as an audiobook with her reading it. And it was like she was telling me her story. Yeah. Such a great book. Phenomenal. Roman just deleted all the questions. Oh, no, here it is. (laughs) (laughs) What is your favorite mom dish? Mac and cheese. Mac and cheese. Your mom made mac and cheese. But not Kraft mac and cheese box, not the yellow powder. Yeah. And I don't have a sophisticated palate. So don't think that. But I like to make it from scratch. That's one of the things I like to make from scratch. And you answered it from the perspective of what you make as a mom, whereas most of our listeners will tell us what their mom used to make for them. Oh, no. I was thinking, oh, that's a good one too. Well, let's ask that one. What's your favorite mom dish? Probably biryani. A lot of great Bengali dishes, which I don't know how to make, but my mom's like a phenomenal cook. I mean, it's just embarrassing, but I mean, some of them I do, but really, wow. Now I'm hungry. Uh, yeah, I've, I've like, I've given up on trying to master all of the things my mom does. And I'm yes. like, I'll get three of them. If, if I can get three pretty good, I've You'll won. Be good, yes. But what's your least favorite food then? Peas and raisins. 
I cannot stand peas and raisins. Do people have bags of peas and raisins? No, just anything. Raisins and rice. Oh, God. Peas showing up in rice. Oh, I don't know why, which actually is pretty popular in Indian cooking. Oh, yeah. Peas and raisins. We were at, this is, yeah, when the world was normal and even before I had a kid, I was at a South Indian restaurant with a bunch of friends and only two other Indian people were there. And I was ordering, and I'm North Indian, but I knew, oh, you get a dosa, you get that, blah, blah, blah. Uh And people are like, oh, this isn't like the chicken tikka masala. It's like, oh, well, they're different parts of India. And they're like, oh, they all must be good. And I immediately go off on a rant <laughs> about how bad Gujarati food is <laughs> oh <my laughs> because God. it has because it has raisins in it, right? Yes. And God, I cannot remember the, the guy's name, Rippik. And he was just giving me this, you are dead to me stare. And I was like, <laughs> and he's like, you know, I'm from Gujarat. I was like, I stand by it. The food is bad. <laughs> Who puts raisins in their food? <laughs> Well, I like things in threes. So peas, raisins, and carrot cake. That's it. Those are my three ah, arch nemesis when it comes to food. Yes. Oh, God. No carrot cake. <laughs> Friendship no over. I'm glad this, yeah, glad this episode's almost over. Yeah. <laughs> I, I no, actually, like we should be friends because that means more for me. That's yes, true. that's yeah. true. Yeah. More for you. Who's someone out there that you'd want to interview on a podcast? Gretchen Carlson. Okay, go. More. Need to know more. (laughs) Gretchen Carlson, I'm obsessed with Bombshell. I'm obsessed with everything that happened in Fox News. I saw her speak at a Dress for Success breakfast a few years back. And I know she's under non-disclosure. It's just her story is so fascinating. And following her on LinkedIn and some of the things she's doing, I would love to not even interview her, just have a drink with her. Yeah. yeah. Just have a meal with her. I just, listen, I think it takes a lot of courage to do what she did, regardless of politics or whether you agree or disagree with views, but just what she did and following her story and sort of the fallout from Fox News, it's just, it's phenomenal. Wow. What does being a modern minority mean to you? Not being afraid to tell your truth. And what I would tell my younger self is do it afraid. I was afraid a lot growing up for a lot of different reasons, but just do it afraid. That's great. Do it afraid. That's a bumper sticker right there. Give me credit for it when you make your sales. Yeah. I actually think I took that from someone else. I don't remember, <laughs> but I just, that, that's something I tell myself every time I'm just scared to do something, just do it afraid. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? I'm going to start saying that. That's great. Thanks for just, even not just this show, but thanks for being you and speaking your truth constantly and consistently over the years. Oh, I think it means you. a lot for a lot of people. Thank you. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now here's a preview of our next episode. Being a child of African immigrants, it's always about fitting in. Growing up, the worst thing in the world to be is different. My parents' accents, the food we ate, the clothes we wore, everything we did made us stand out. It wasn't until I was older where I started embracing all those things. Hip-hop played such a big role in my life because there's a period where it was very Afrocentric. Karis One, the Jungle Brothers, a tribe called Quest, Queen Latifah, the movement embraced. A lot of the stuff we were wearing just because that's what we wore. So the things that I used to be ashamed of, I now took pride in the world recognizing it. That's it for now. 
I've been Ramin Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. 